Welcome to another episode of the Gay Barchive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is author Daniel M. Jaffe, who will be telling us about his favorite bars from Boston's colorful gay past. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, Art. It's good to be here. And it's good to have you. I have done, you are now uh, interview number 101. So I have done over 100 interviews talking to people about their memories of gay bars all across the country. And I have, I have spoken to a couple of people about Boston, but I am really eager to hear about some of these clubs that no one has ever mentioned um, or has not really gotten into. And one of the first bars you mentioned to me uh, when we were communicating by email was a bar in Boston called Sporters. What can you tell me about Sporters? Well, Sporters, let me mention that I, um, I, I moved to Boston in like late August 1978 and stayed until uh, the summer of 2001. So that's the time period that, that I really knew the bars. Uh, Sporters was uh, on Charles Street uh, at the base of Beacon Hill. At the, in the late 70s, Beacon Hill was a very popular gay neighborhood. A lot of gay and lesbian folks lived there. And uh, it, it's where Massachusetts General Hospital is. That was sort of across the street from Sporters and, and so forth. There was a subway station in, in Boston they call the subway the T. So it was very, very easily accessible and very popular. Um, Sporters was the very first gay bar I ever went to. I had had, I came out in college in New Jersey in my, the end of my senior year, and I made a friend, Louis de Paulus, who it turns out was from Boston. So the next uh, fall, when I went up to the Boston area for law school, Louis had moved home and he said, well, I have to take you to a bar. So he picked Sporters because it was popular and because I could get there easily by tea from Cambridge. Cambridge is just across the river from Boston and uh, they, Cambridge and Boston function pretty much as one social community. So I met Louis at Sporters. I was really nervous, not knowing what to expect. And, and it was just like a nice place. So, so then he said, okay, so now you have some place to go. Okay. But I was still very nervous about it. I'd never been to a, a gay bar on my own. So a few weeks went by and I think it was a Friday night. Um, I decided I'm going to go and no matter what happens, it, 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 it just happens. I'm going to experience gay life. And, uh, but the first problem was when, does, when do people go? I had no idea. So at eight o'clock on a Friday night, I go to Sporters and there was no sign on the door, just a dark door. You know, those were times when, when things were much less open than today. And um, I, I went in and the Sporters was two rooms, one big room when you walk in where there was a square bar and the next room where there was a dance floor. So I walk in and I'm the only client there, customer there. So I, I'm nervous. I sit down immediately at the bar in the corner and then the bartender comes up to me and asks what I want to drink. And now I have my other big problem because growing up as an observant good Jewish boy, the only thing I had ever drunk before was ceremonial wine, Manischewitz wine. And I didn't think that was the right thing to ask for at the bar. But I, I remembered a TV commercial. So I said, okay, I'll have a Miller Lite. And you know okay so basically I passed as an experienced gay young man for a few minutes 
So he gave me the, the beer and I'm nursing it. And then finally two other guys come in and they start kissing and I couldn't believe it. It was the first time I'd seen men kiss and it was shocking and thrilling. And the idea that there was actually a space where gay men could kiss in front of other people was mind blowing to me. Absolutely mind blowing. So gradually the bar filled up. And then at some point, or probably around 10, the bartender brings me another beer, which I hadn't ordered because I still hadn't finished my first one after about two hours. And he said, somebody down at the end of the bar sent you this beer. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's like like being in one of those romantic movies, those rom-com things. <laughs> and so I, I looked at the end of the bar and there was a guy a bit older than me and like maybe 10 years older. And he raised his beer bottle to me. I raised to him the one that had been sent to me. And I knew from the movies, when someone does that, you're supposed to go over. So, so I went over to him and thanked him. We started chatting. And then the next thing, it just shows how naive I was. So while I'm chatting with him, a friend of his comes over and sticks his tongue in my ear. So I'm talking to this one guy and this other guy comes over, starts tonguing my ear. And I don't know how I'm supposed to react. And that was my way of thinking was how am I supposed to react? Not how do I want to react? So I didn't know what to do. So I just ignored it. So this guy kept tonguing my ear while I'm talking to his friend it was very strange um and then a couple of other friends of theirs came in and they decided they were all going back to an apartment did I want to join them now I had never gone home with anyone from a bar before um so but I had said to myself you know anything goes tonight so I said okay I'll go with you not having a clue as to what I might be getting myself into so the, let's call him the tongue guy. He had an apartment on Beacon Hill. So we walked a few blocks. They bought beer. We go up to his apartment. We go in and there are these two giant Irish setters that he's house sitting for who are jumping around. Okay, fine. Well, we sit around. For some reason, they put I Love Lucy reruns on TV. I mean, <laughs> as we're sitting around this little living room and they're passing a joint. And of course, good Jewish boy that I was, I had never smoked. So I just sort of, you know, held the joint and didn't smoke it and then passed it. And they all noticed and commented on it. So I'm getting increasingly embarrassed. Okay, they're drinking and drinking. And finally, the two friends they had brought are bored and they leave. The guy who's the tongue guy whose apartment it is, he passes out in the bedroom. So now it's me and the guy who ordered me the beer on his sofa. And then he passes out. Now, by this time, it's already 2.30 in the morning. And by then, the tea in Boston, the subway has stopped running. And I was still new to the city and didn't have a sense of how else to get home. So I figured, well, I'll just wait on the sofa until 5.30 in the morning when the tea runs again. And then the two Irish setters jumped on the sofa and wanted to cuddle on my lap. So... I slept with the two dogs. And the way I think of it is my first experience with, at a gay bar is I slept with two hairy beasts and, <laughs> and it went just fine. And actually in the morning when I left, I was thrilled because I thought I can do this. I can handle this. I can handle going home with four men. It's no big deal. 
<laughs> so, so I actually had to write about this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a writer. And, and so I wrote about it. One of my short stories called First Night. And it's about a character who was as innocent and stupid as me and had a, a similar experience. So I would go back to sporters because now I felt, you know, I can deal with it. And I gradually started, you know, learning the, the the cultural ways of of meeting people and talking with people. I mean, I made mistakes. Like some guy came up to me and said in a very sexy voice, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a law student. He said, no, 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 no. What do you do in the bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, that's what you meant. Well, I had very little experience, so I really couldn't expand on that. Uh, but that was fun. But I, I do have to say, I and it's through no fault of sporters, but I also had a very scary experience uh, in my naivete there. Um, I had heard after a while that when sporters closed at two, which was the official closing time for bars in Boston at that time, um the lights would go up whoever was there would would stand in two lines opposite one another and you would find a partner for the night and I thought that sounds very exciting so even though I usually was never there that late I decided to try it so I went late and I the lights went up and I stood in one of the two lines facing people and made eye contact with this cute guy and Instead of his coming over and starting a conversation, he came over and said, hold my beer bottle. I'm going to piss. I'll be back. We can go. It was like, hello, my name is Dan. I mean, it was so transactional. I was taken aback, but okay. Um, so he came back. I gave him back his beer bottle. And I said, let's see if we could find a taxi. He said, no, let's walk to your place. Well, my place in back in Cambridge was about two miles away. At that point, I understood how to get there, but still, but no, he insisted. It's like, that should have been my first red flag. Okay. So we're walking. Now to get to Cambridge, you had to cross the Longfellow Bridge. So we're walking on the bridge. It's now 2.30, 2.30-ish in the morning, very little traffic. And on the middle of the bridge, he holds up his beer bottle and says to me, I could break this beer bottle and have a terrific weapon. And at that point, I, I panic. I really freak out. It's like, what do I do? Either I run <laughs> or I jump off the bridge into the river. I didn't know what to do. And instead of thinking, well, I should just walk him to the Cambridge police station, I took him home which of course, in retrospect, as a mature person, I realized that was the stupidest thing I could do, but it was the only thing I could think of doing. And so we did. And by the time we got there, it's now after three and he's grumbling that he has to get up really early because he has to work Sunday morning. He has to be out by seven. So I said, you know, you really should get your sleep. Why don't I let you take the bed and I'll just sit on the sofa so you sleep so you're fresh for work in the morning. And he went with it. I did not sleep at all and kept watching the clock. And when it was like 6.30 in the morning, I woke him up and said, you got to go. You got to get to your job. And he left. And that was like oh, a learning experience. But it really taught me the, the potential dangers and the stupidity of young people. Um, and at that time, that young person was me.
So when I hear, you know, over the years, you hear things and you hear about somebody going home with a stranger and having a bad experience, I think I, I, I get it. I understand how it could happen. You know? I do too. And I, you know, my first gay bar experience was the same time as yours, basically. Uh, it was 1978, happened to be in Baltimore, but uh, same time frame. And the experiences then were different. I mean, I don't know about you and your friends and the people you, you socialized with, but I was extremely promiscuous then um, in the late seventies through a good part of the eighties. I can't even tell you how many weekends I had multiple sex partners, several of whom I may not have even known their name at the time of the encounter, let alone a week later. Um, I one time had a guy walk up to me in a bar. Uh, I was, my boyfriend had gone off to get some drinks and I was standing there by myself looking at the dance floor. He just walked up in his very first breath. He said, nice shirt, want to fuck. <laughs> <clears throat> My boyfriend came back with the drinks. And I said, I really can't. I said, we're waiting to meet a friend of ours who's coming from out of town, which was true. And he looked at me as if this was going to be convincing that I should participate he said i live three doors down it'll only take 15 minutes <laughs> it doesn't surprise me it really so that wasn't. was the mindset back then was you know it was like free love the free love movement in the mainstream population had kind of come to fruition by that point um women's rights were growing the concept of expressing sexuality and interests were expanding and becoming more commonplace. And in the gay community, it was manifest because there were, there was no AIDS. There was no risk of pregnancy. There was, you know, it was just, Hey, I can have sex as many times as I want. Right. And, and I think part of it too, at least for me, I mean, I, I was I was still inhibited, so I was I I was a little shyer than some of my other friends, but still the idea was I've been repressed for so long. It's like now it's an, almost an explosion of opportunity, and this was the first time I was in a big city, and the first time I mean I was I was twenty when I first went to Sporters, so really was at the age where okay I'm an adult now, and. There was also another component to it, for some of us anyway, was was that it was a political act that, you know, that some for so long we'd been told we're not allowed to do this. It's like in your face, we will do this. Absolutely. And, you know, having the sex was an assertion of our civil rights. I mean, it, it's, it can be hard for straight people sometimes to, to understand that. They, they think, oh, it's just an excuse for fooling around. But I don't think so. I think that it was it was it was an ideological thing too, that that we want to assert ourselves and 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 there was a lot of, and there were disagreements. Like sometimes I would date with people, date people, and I I tended my my approach was very much I was a a serial monogamist, so I was always looking for a boyfriend with whom to be monogamous, and or a day or a week. Well, well, for as long as as we we hit it off, and and for me it would tend to be like I would like months at a time, but some, and sometimes most of the time it was just, you know, well, we really didn't get along after a couple of months. So what didn't work out, but there were times when it was one of us would want to be monogamous and the other would feel, no, uh, you're stifling me. And so it was very much in the air that, 
you know, we 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 want to just play around, and and that does not mean we can't be in relationship too, you know. So for a lot of people, it was yeah, I'll have a main boyfriend, but then we'll each fool around separately, and it won't mean anything, but it'll be fun. So that was a big part of it, and you know, I think for younger people today, you have if young. Let me speak to younger people. You have to remember there was no internet, you know? right. <laughs> There, 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 there was no growler or grinder or, or scrub or whatever the apps are. It was the bars were the place for the most part to meet people. They were cruising areas, but the bars were the place. The, the bars served to as a social space where you could just be free, where you could meet meet people, or you could just hang out with friends, or you could look for somebody to go home with, or look for a boyfriend, or do all those things at once. You know? Absolutely. Because at that time, you know, and I've emphasized this before, but now there are cruising spaces everywhere. If you're walking down Main Street, that's a cruising space. If you're walking through the shopping mall, that's a cruising space. If you're walking from your table at Applebee's to the restroom, that's a cruising space. Wherever you are now, it's kind of okay in a major city anyway to glance around and look for a you know potential partner in crime or whatever uh back then that wasn't the case at all if you looked at somebody too long in a mall you might not make it out of the mall um, that's right. it was a, a different environment so yes, the, the, bar, the bars were the safe places to exchange ideas and express your interest in somebody and meet other like-minded people now, right. af- after you survived your multiple experiences at Sporters over the years, uh, you also mentioned that another favorite bar of yours in Boston was Ramrod. And and there were two Ramrods in Boston. The original Ramrod was called Herbie's Ramrod, correct? Yeah, that, I, I think so. That was bef- right before my time or right as I, as I arrived, uh, it shut down. I think that's right. I think that's right. The late 70s. But the one yeah. you're referring to is the Boston Ramrod. And that was a little bit more uh, current and, and probably I'm guess was it, was it less leathery than? No, uh, it, was, it was actually, it was, well, I, I can't say less cause I hadn't been to Herbie's, but it was known as a leather bar. Okay. Um, and the Boston Ramrod, this was in the Fenway, a neighborhood not far from Fenway park, the baseball stadium. And um, uh, uh, there was a, near the the museum of fine arts and the fenway neighborhood where northeastern university is um and the fens were uh, both a uh, sort of the uh, the victory gardens from during world war when people would grow their own vegetables but late at night uh, really late they were given there were lots of reeds and bushes it would become a cruising area um, the Boston Ramrod was was very much near there. Now, for me, I I kind of switched. Well, we'll get to another bar earlier, uh, a little later in our conversation. But I started going to the Ramrod a lot after I moved out of Cambridge. I had been living in Cambridge during law school, and then um, when I first started working, I worked as a lawyer for a number of years, and I moved to the suburbs, um, a, a community called Chestnut Hill. That was a close suburbs, but it was a suburb and it was easier for me to get to the Ramrod than any of the other bars in town. That was like a less than 15 minute drive. So that became sort of the bar I would go to. 
Um, I liked the sort of the masculine vibe. You know, I think when we say leather bar, in some cities, leather is more serious than at least it was at that time in Boston. In in some cities like New York, Chicago, leather also can mean a lot of S&M and that sort of thing. In Boston, the way I thought of it was the ramrod, people wore leather kind of like a costume. It was it it didn't necessarily go more than skin deep, but it was an assertion of masculinity. And that was kind of the environment people liked. Uh, I, uh, it was like black walls and jock straps from the ceiling. You know, um, I actually wrote about it in, in one of my novels. I, I didn't name it, but I set a, a chapter there. Um, and I would enjoy the ramrods simply as a place to hang out. Um, sometimes I'd run into people I knew, but for me, the ramrod will always hold a very special place in my heart because it's where I met the man who was now my husband. We met there 29 years ago. Um, I remember the evening very clearly. I, I was just, I was at home and didn't feel like being alone and, and, didn't have any agenda I just wanted to get out for an hour or two so I drove to the ramrod and while there the, the way it was set up it was basically two very long rooms side by side I mean there was a small staircase uh, inside with a lower bar and then an upper one but there were two long rooms and you could go back and forth from one to the next uh, sometimes the 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 second room was sort of a back room where they'd only like late Friday nights and Saturday nights they'd only let you in there if you were either wearing leather or shirtless. Um, it, it was not a heavy back room. I mean, some guys would fool around a little bit, but then you know a bartender would come around with a flashlight and say, "Cut it out," you know that kind of thing. So it was not really a a heavy sex back room. It was more just a a a, a more macho place to hang out and maybe you know, hug and touch a naked chest, you know, that kind of thing. So, okay, so I go in um, and I'm in the main room and I'm up against the, the wall that divides the two long rooms and I'm chatting with somebody I hadn't met before. And as we're chatting, and it's now crowded, so it's probably around 11, this guy walks in and his eyes meet mine. And... Most of the time, at that, at least back then, you would give a quick glance and then, you know, you look away because if you if you stared too long, it was kind of like making a commitment. So you'd look and then if you want to show interest, you look again and then you look away and you look again, and you look away. But this guy and I, our gaze held. And he's walking and I see he's walking with somebody else. But as he's walking past me, our eyes hold. And he keeps walking and he turns his head back and our eyes keep holding and until he disappears in the crowd. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, is he handsome. He was taller than me and jet black hair and dark eyes and wide face, a beautiful man. OK, so I'm, I'm in this conversation with this guy next to me and I finish up talking. Um, he and I aren't really that interested in each other. OK, fine. So then I, I, I notice that on the other side of me, guess who's suddenly standing there? It was the guy, the gorgeous guy who was staring at me. So so etiquette, of course, dictated that since he was bold enough to find a space next to me, it was now my turn to make a move. So I looked at him and as I remember it, I said, hi. 
that's not how he remembers it. He remembers it, it that I looked at him and said, hello, which I don't think I would have done. <laughs> but he likes to say that. He remembers it that way. And so we started chatting and we chatted for hours, hours. There was no forced conversation. It was natural. We just hit it off. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is special. Um, and, um, and that was the beginning. And, um, then we, you know, we started dating and, uh, and we saw each other for years. Um, he, he was finishing graduate school. He became a professor and he was looking for, we knew he was going to be looking for a job outside of Boston. I was living in Chestnut Hill. He was living in Somerville, which was a town adjoining Cambridge. So we were about a 25 minute, half hour drive apart. And we thought about moving in together, but we knew he was going to be looking for a job elsewhere. So we waited um, until he found the right job for himself. So we actually waited eight years. Um, and then he found a job in Santa Barbara at UCSB, UC Santa Barbara. His name is Leo. And uh, he's originally from Puerto Rico. So it's L-E-O, but we pronounce it the Spanish pronunciation, Leo. And um, so Leo got the job out in California. And so we moved to California and that's where we are. And we were able to, to marry, you know, legally nine years ago. So we told, we got married at the Santa Barbara County Courthouse. We told the, the clerk who was marrying us, it was a 20 year engagement. We wanted to be sure. And, <laughs> and, and now, now it's 20 and we just celebrated our 29th year together. So that's thanks to the Boston Ramrod. Uh, so that was my favorite story about that. Um, yeah. Now the, the Ramrod, when I've done my research on the Ramrod in its new incarnation, which the one you're talking about, was at twelve fifty four Boylston Street. Yes, yes. In that incarnation, I have found ads that include the name Ramrod, but also refer to it as the attic, as twelve fifty four, as um, what was the other name? Uh, machine. Machine, machine. They opened in. I want to say the late nineties, if I'm remembering correctly. They opened a downstairs, and Machine was a dance club downstairs. So you could walk from one to the other inside, but they they promoted themselves as two different clubs, and kind of two different crowds. I mean, people could mix, but Machine was not necessarily a leather dance club. Um, right. That was more, more general. The other names, I I, I don't know. I, I mean, again, I left in 2001. Maybe after that, you know, they started advertising. Yeah, differently. who knows? It's not uncommon. And sometimes it's just because they're doing a promotion for that night. Um, right. Because I know at some point, um, well, and they, on the second, the second floor was where Ramrod was, right? Yeah. And it wasn't like a full second story. It was just like a, maybe a half flight. Because yeah. I even found one ad, one flyer that shows Latin lesbian night on a Saturday night on the second floor at Machine Ramrod. So oh, apparently yeah. they diversified a little bit more than just oh. a leather crowd as time yeah. went on. That must have been. That must have been. I, I, I traveled back to Boston once in the mid 
two, early 2000, 2005 or six or something. And I went to the Ramrod and, and really the reason I went there was out of a sense of nostalgia. I wanted to be able to tell my partner at the time we weren't married yet. Oh, I went back to where we met. <laughs> but uh, And it was different. I remember seeing women in, in, in a different kind of crowd. I mean, but when I would go there, the only women I would see there would be leather women. Right. You know, women like the dykes on bikes kind of folks. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. you also so mentioned... You also mentioned another club that I have had someone else uh, mention before, and I'm trying to think if, if it was was it could it have been DJ Paul V? That doesn't ring a bell. It doesn't. Mean uh, it wasn't there. He was a DJ, and I, I believe he worked in Boston for some time. But uh, you mentioned Paradise. Now Paradise oh. was in Cambridge, correct? Yeah, Paradise for me <laughs> that was that was my, like my home, my second home for years. When I was in law school, I was at Harvard, which is in Cambridge, and I lived in the the first year. I lived in the dorms, and the Paradise was sort of far in, away in Cambridge, um, near MIT, but it was close enough that I could walk. It was about a twenty five thirty a thirty minute walk, say, so I could walk. You know, and as a, as a as a student, I didn't want to be taking taxis and, and the T was kind of like halfway there. So it kind of, you know, didn't make sense. Once I got to the T station, I might as well have continued on to the paradise. But for me, that was really it was excellent as a as a beginning. So so I Sporters was the first one I went to and I went a few times. But then I discovered the paradise and I, I switched to that because it was closer, but also because for, for innocent, naive little me, it was more tame. Um, it was, it was pop, popular with locals. So it was popular with students who were living in Cambridge. So uh, I would typically run into fellas I knew, excuse me, from campus um, as well as others. But what made it special, the atmosphere was it was not a dance bar um it was relatively small you'd walk in there'd be a bar along the wall to the right and it was sort of a triangle shape and then there would be places to stand and a few tables and a sort of half bar in the middle um there was for many years there wasn't a a fancy barista the way we've had in recent decades there was annie annie was a woman in her 70s who wore like a pink waitress dress from like diners and a hairnet. And she always had a lot of makeup and you know, big red lips. And Annie would walk around asking you if you wanted a drink. And she was like everybody's grandmother or mother. <laughs> and it was incredibly sweet. And they, the atmosphere, I don't know what the place, I guess the place had always been an old bar. There was like the, the black press tile ceiling and they would play old music from like the 40s and 50s so it was a very relaxed low-key place um annie i remember in the first couple of years i started going people would grumble that you know she'd be cheating them with change and then she had cataract surgery and no more mistakes with change the poor woman (laughs) couldn't see clearly that's all it was (laughs) um but i i i for, for for a number of years that's where i would go i i met uh, really, the majority of men whom I would date, I, I met there. Um, and it would be, you know, sometimes just for a couple of weeks, sometimes for a month, sometimes for a year. Um, but 
sort of fellas that I ended up liking, we just sort of found each other there. And it was also the kind of place where uh, even if you weren't dating somebody, you'd run into people liked it as a repeat kind of place to go to. And so you might run into somebody you went home with and had a nice time with. And then you're not dating, but, you know, a couple of months later, you run into him again. It's like, oh, would you like to go home again? Sure. You know, very casual and relaxed. Um, and they're there eventually they opened a, a downstairs which became um uh, with with dancing if i remember correctly and they also for a while had underwear night which was popular for a while but it kind of got out of hand so i think they they stopped that and all these men walking around in underwear in a dark basement and you know things are going to happen <laughs> yeah i don't think in the late 70s and early 80s um most of us as members of the gay community were quite ready for underwear night. We just, it was a little bit too tempting to take it all the way. Um, and we hadn't evolved. I mean, most of us were just realizing that we even had a community. So yeah, it was, I, I remember that general time frame. Um, and plus, you know, where you're, where this bar was located, right, you know, right there near MIT, and down the street from Harvard, in Cambridge, it's a completely different environment than you would see, um, for instance, in the combat zone in Boston, oh, yeah. where you would oh, have yeah. all kinds of craziness going on. It's a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more educated, um, although I have not necessarily found that more educated gay men behave any better than less no. educated gay men. <laughs> no, education has nothing to do with it. <laughs> You know, one of the one of the fun things about walking to the paradise was it was right on Mass Ave, Massachusetts Avenue on a corner. And on the way there near it, you had to walk by what was the Neko. I remember it. So you walk by and the air is all sweet and fragrant. It smells like candy. Yes. So it was just kind of this lovely metaphor. You know, you're walking to a bar and just the air is all sweet and perfumey. I remember I remember one one really important moment for me at the paradise was one where I really asserted myself in a way that was not characteristic, which was I, I was dating somebody whom I had I had met there and um, we were dating and uh, we wanted to go out to dinner. And for whatever reason, we said, well, let's just meet at the paradise at seven on a Friday. Uh, it was convenient you know, to meet there. And then we'd go from there. So I got there and it was it was way too early. I mean, gay men wouldn't start showing up till I think probably nine at the earliest, but really about more like nine thirty or ten. And so around seven, I'm there and there's a table filled with men and women. And I, I order a beer and I'm standing against the wall and I hear these men and women snickering, looking at me, and I hear them making homophobic remarks. So I'm very upset because this is my space. They can go to any bar they want to. What are they doing in my space where I can't go to any bar and be with my people? So Annie comes over and I say, Annie, what's going on? Who are these people? And she said, well, you know, we're open during the day as a regular bar. It's not, you know, a gay bar till the evening. She said, I'm trying to get rid of them, but they won't leave. So she said, I don't know what I'm going to do because, you know, when the crowd comes, these people they shouldn't be here. So I figured, I said, don't, I'll take care of it. So I waited. 
And when this fellow I was dating walked in, he came over to me and I said, kiss me. He said, what? I said, big kiss. Well, we did a Hollywood dramatic kiss, tongue kiss, deep embrace, groping each other. Those straight people were out of there in the shot. <laughs> and I felt so good. It was like, yes, that's it. Don't be in our space. So that was like my favorite moment at the paradise. <laughs> good for you. Now, another um, club you had mentioned to me, is one that is at the opposite end of the collegiate bar spectrum. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a club by the name of Napoleon. And uh, from what I've, what I've uncovered and heard from other people about Napoleon is that it was kind of a posh, snooty, elegant, upscale, older gentleman's club that had young men who sometimes liked older men's company. Yes. Um, so, and that was in Boston. That was not in Cambridge. But um, even the 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 fact that they named it Napoleon, and you used a um, kind of Napoleonic laurel wreath crest, and you know, uh, they just they just screamed. You know, we're a bunch of pissy queens. Yes, I think that's a, that's a good expression way of, of characterizing it. Um, I would go there once in a while. Um, it wasn't a favorite, but what was nice about it is they had a piano bar and they would, would be sing-along. So they would be doing musicals and everybody, you know, musical numbers. So everybody would sing along. But when I would go to Napoleon, um, I would definitely dress differently than when I would go to the Paradise or Ramrod or Sporters. Right. No leather harness, no, no, no. skin-tight no. tank top, no shredded blue no. jeans and no motorcycle no. boots. No, no, no. Um, definitely uh, dressed nicer. And I I liked men at the time in my early 20s. I liked men who were maybe in their late 20s or early 30s, but not really uh, much older than that. And, and sort of Napoleon was really for men who were much older, middle-aged and older. And there would be men in jackets and ties. Not all, the, all of them, but, but certainly in button-down shirts and um, and, you know, there were, as I recall, there were two rooms. There was Napoleon, which was the main one with the piano bar. And there was a side room that was called Josephine, of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was fancy decor. And it was, you know, I, sometimes I'd go with friends if we were having dinner in Boston or something, you know, if we were downtown. Um, and then in my later years, I was working downtown. Um, so maybe on occasion I'd be working late and then go to Napoleon or something for a drink. But it was not like a, a first choice for me. Um, it was a nice, fun neighborhood bar for others. And, and there certainly were younger men who were attracted to older men. That was that was the place to go. And for older men who were looking for younger men, that was the place to go. And, and just as a point of clarification, I want to state that when you refer to the um, the more common patrons of Napoleon's uh, as middle-aged or as older men, what you really mean is young guys, right? At, with the passage of time, they are now young guys. Because <laughs> when we were 20, those guys were ancient. They were in their 40s. And we were like, yes. oh, my God, how'd they live so long? And now that we've gotten past our 29th birthdays, 
we realized that they weren't quite so old after all. <laughs> well, yes, that's it. I'm trying to, you know, to remember specific faces. I think, I think if I were to go there now, you know, back, if I were to transport myself back in time, I would be probably one of the oldest men there. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody, apparently Napoleon's had enough of an impact on the Boston scene <clears throat> that another club, which I believe is still operating, uh, Club Cafe, has kind oh. of adapted part of their personality. They actually oh. have the stained glass from Napoleon's uh, piano room in their in their piano space, don't they? You know, that I don't know. They may. That I don't know. Club Cafe was a very nice place. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear it's still around. Um, and it was not far from where Napoleon's was. Um, Club Cafe was sort of a bit of a comp. They, they came out as a, as, a, as a sort of an all-purpose complex. So they had a bar area, regular bar. It was not huge, but it was comfortable. Um, very comfortable, like for after work. They also had a restaurant, a nice restaurant attached to the bar so you could move from one to the other or you could stand in the bar and you know cruise people who were eating dinner uh, or back and forth they also had a dance floor in a separate room so they had all three they had you know just having drinks or or dining or uh, a dance uh, uh, room too so it was very nice and and really men and women um, and um, very very comfortable um, but not necessarily fancy but not grungy i would say but uh, but very comfortable for the back bay for folks who live because uh, people moved i had mentioned earlier that uh, in the late 70s beacon hill was sort of a major place where gay men and lesbians were living that kind of shifted to the back bay and which is another neighborhood and then it shifted to the south end especially for gay men um, and I, I didn't hang out in the South End a lot. There were a couple of bars there, but those I don't really, I didn't really spend time, time at. But Club Cafe was for the Back Bay, very, very nice place, just very comfortable. And I think it, it also reflected a bit of a shift in our mindset about about ourselves as a community when, when in the earlier years, sort of the grunginess of bars. This is just my personal interpretation. Part of it was kind of like, well, thinking maybe we don't deserve better. You know, we're we're not we're like second class citizens. We're kind of used to hiding. And as time went on, some of the clubs sort of got spiffier and nicer and more modern sort of to say, well, that's fine if we want it. But we also have, you know, more ordinary bars looking like everybody else's bars. Right. If we want them too. So we have a choice. We're not forced into you know, spaces run by the mob. So yeah, and I think that happened commonly in the 80s. Um, in a mm -hmm. lot of cities around the country, you started to see some nicer spaces. Mm -hmm. Really, probably in the late 70s, you probably saw some. But then into the 80s and early 90s, you started to see, like, for instance, in New York, who would have ever imagined a gay bar like Palladium? You no, know, I've never been. I've heard of it. I've never been. foot ceilings in the main dance floor. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. I mean, you know... So many places. Now, you also mentioned another gay bar that I have never found any information on ever. So I'm going to ask you, what was Darts like? You know, I'm. There were, as I recall, there were two that were sort of near each other behind the Boston Public Library on a side street: Darts and Chaps. Okay. And as I remember. I had uh, in our correspondence, I had gotten darts confused with another one initially. But now that I, that I remember, they were both just small bars 
I don't remember anything particularly distinctive about them except their location that near the Boston Public Library, which is Copley Square. Yeah. Um, and so when when Back Bay was the neighborhood where a lot of gay men in particular were living, those were sort of like neighborhood bars. Um, also, they were on a side street behind the library. So if you worked in one of the bigger uh, office buildings in the main part of Copley Square and weren't out, you could go to the side street and people wouldn't see you going into these bars. Yeah. And as I recall, I believe it was in my interview with Michael O'Connor, which was probably a year ago. Um, and he spoke about chaps. I kind of remember his description of that bar maybe being kind of not really leather, but kind of Levi Western yeah. ma- kind of edging to the macho side. It wasn't really like a, an effeminate day bar or a show bar. It I, was I, like, I, I think that's right. And I just, I do want to caution for chaps and darts. If somebody contradicts me in describing them, go with their view because I was only eating to them like once. Well, and this is all about oral history. So people remember things differently. You know, some people think um, McDonald's is an extravagant, lovely restaurant (laughs) and other people think it's the dumpiest place on the planet. So we all have our opinions. Now you did mention a couple of other bars. One, Man Ray, I know for a fact that DJ Paul V worked there as well. And oh, okay. He did talk about that quite extensively. It is a really kind of a cool place. Uh, but one that you mentioned to me that piqued my curiosity, and I did find some information about them, and it kind of um, wasn't all totally consistent, but you mentioned a lesbian bar yeah. by the name of Saints. Saints, as I recall, there were two, there were two that I knew of, uh, both in the financial district in Boston, downtown Boston, sort of downtown crossing area, not far from the state house. Um, the Saints, I had not been to. The other one, somewhere else, I had been to. The Saints, the reputation it had among gay men was a scary dyke bar. Don't go there. It was. It was, that's where the serious butch lesbians would go. I have no idea if that was an accurate stereotype. No, it it probably was because I did find um, another guy that I've interviewed. His name is Eric Gonzaba is working on a project called Mapping the Gay Guides. Ah. And in that project, he goes through and catalogs all of the bars that were listed in Damron's guides from Ah. 1974 until the present day. On the website, they only list up to 1980 at the moment. But uh, in every listing I could find for Saints, yeah, the description has a G, letter G, which was uh, Damron's designation for girls, meaning it was a women's bar, not a mixed bar or a men's bar. And in several of the ads I've seen for them, uh, they were very well connected with the Daughters of Bolitis. Uh-huh. Um, they advertised, the only ads I've ever found for them was in a Boston journal called Focus, a journal for gay women. Oh. Um, and in their 1976 listing in um, Damron's Guide, it specifically says, no men permitted. Okay. So, Okay. That uh, 77, was, that, it says women only. So I'm yeah. guessing it was a militant women's bar. That that fits with my recollection. And at that time, um, I, I knew, uh, you know, I had some, some feminist women friends. And I knew that there were, 
I, I want to say at Boston, was it Boston, BU or Boston College, there was um, uh, uh, Kate Millett was a, a very active feminist. She um, uh, taught at one of them, I can't remember which, and she had a course where she would not allow male students, which is, I don't think you could legally get away with that today. But it was, that was a time when there were some, some politically active women who really were thinking of themselves as separatists from men. They saw men as, as, a, as a real problem, regardless of straight or gay, didn't matter. And so it doesn't surprise me that at that time, the saints had that policy. I mean, there I did go to a, another woman's bar known, I've heard it both as somewhere or somewhere else. And I was dating a guy and two women friends invited us to dance, go dancing with them at somewhere else. So we were going to meet them there. So this fellow John and I went and I remember the bouncer at the door, a woman, as we were about to go in, she said, do you know what kind of bar this is? And we said, yes. She said, okay. And, I said, and we said, we're meeting some women friends. She said, okay. And we went in and it was, I think we were, no, there was, there were a couple of other men there, but it was almost entirely women. And we danced and there was no issue. It was not a non-issue. It was an absolute non-issue that we were there. Um, but the saints we wouldn't have considered trying to get into. <laughs> no. Yeah. They were pretty, pretty adamant about not wanting men in there. Yeah. And, uh, and oddly it was a straight bar during the day. Also, when uh, it first started out, it was a straight bar. And I guess a lesbian bartender who worked there convinced the owner, uh, to let them operate as a lesbian bar at night because they did, they were, they had no crowd at night. And so during the day it was, um, just mainstream regular kind of bar. And then at right. night it became, um, it became a little bit more aggressively female. Right. So, right. so you've had some great stories to tell about these bars in, uh, in Boston and a few new bars that we haven't heard about before. So I really appreciate that. But I yeah. want people to get an idea of who you are. And, yeah. um, and I know if they, if they look at any of the listings of, um, of your books online, a lot of your books are all fiction but they draw from your own experience, which I guess goes along with the old adage, write what you know, um, because some of your books touch on Jewish culture. Some of your books are about uh, gay experiences. There's a lot of, you know, some of them involve European cities and travel. And in fact, you have two books that I, I believe I'm aware of the, um, that both involve travel um, and gay or is this the same one? Foreign Affairs, Male Tales of Lust and Love? Right. That one is specifically uh, a collection of short stories about men, American men, who travel to other countries <clears throat> and the experiences they have in other countries. So uh, I, I did it that way uh, because I wanted to be sure while presenting uh, other cultures to make it clear, I'm doing it from an American perspective. So I'm not trying to pretend that I can get into the mindset of people in other countries. So the main characters are always American men who travel. And most of them are gay. There are some who are straight in the, in the stories, but most of them are gay. And so um, based on my own travel experiences, so for example, my husband, Leo, as I mentioned, was a professor and he 
went to, he was invited to a conference in um, Dublin uh, a few years ago. Um, let me, Leo Cabranes Grant is his name. He's a gay playwright um, uh, and poet, by the way. Um, and so he was at, uh, going to attend this conference. No, the conference was in Galway, Ireland. We went to Dublin together. I stayed in Dublin. He went to Galway and came back to Dublin. And while we were there, coincidentally, it was the, the, the week when the, the Irish were voting on whether or not to approve gay marriage. So it was very a very exciting time, and there were posters everywhere pushing for gay marriage. It was a big deal on TV news and in newspapers. Um, priests were being interviewed about it. They were very upset about it. And, and then it passed. And so it was thrilling. And it was the first time, I think, anywhere in the world where gay marriage, same-sex marriage, was approved by a vote of the population as opposed to the legislature or the courts. And... But while there, I had met um, a closeted man my own age, so say around 60, and he he was talking about he was an employee of the church. He worked in a church school. He couldn't come out. So it occurred to me that here on the one hand, we had this thrilling time of civil rights for gay people in Ireland, but yet there were still people who couldn't come out. So that's what the story was about basically, was about an American, kind of like myself, who meets somebody, has a, a sexual encounter, and learns about the closetedness of this person, while all this celebration of gay rights is going on. So that's a kind of example of, you know, an, a story based on an experience that I had. And so Foreign Affairs is all about that. And your latest book, also involves uh, international travel, but has a little bit different twist to it than a romantic encounter. So why don't you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm laughing because this was a, this is a satire. It was tremendous fun to write. It's called The Grand Sex Tour Murders. And the premise of it is that a, uh, a, a porn producer in the U.S. gets a great idea of taking a group of young men to Europe to have a live streaming sex competition in different European bathhouses. So he'll make money by having subscribers to watch them having their encounters in bathhouses and they're competing to have the most sex and different kinds of sex. But what they don't know is that there is a serial killer who starts tracking them and picking off the men one at a time at one bathhouse after another so that was just uh, i had a blast writing it I'm, it's kind of like a satire of reality tv shows and 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 online porn stuff all of which i think has gone a little too far um and um you know greed and it's also a satire of murder mysteries as they try to track down who is this serial killer so both both those books um, have been published by Rattling Good Yarns Press, which is a wonderful boutique publisher concentrating on gay and lesbian voices. So I, I heartily recommend people look at the list of books they have um, because they're really they're really good. They're really and good. I will at the end of the video put up a slide with the um, RattlingGoodYarns.com website on it. Terrific. Um, so people can can connect to that 
Um, now, I just want to clarify on this last book, this is not based on your personal experience touring <laughs> European bathhouses, and you did not encounter a serial killer at any time in your travels, correct? Correct. I did not encounter a serial killer anytime to your knowledge <laughs> not to my knowledge let's say i was not i was not affected by any potential serial killer i'm here to tell you about it yes <laughs> and and i agree with you 100 percent about rattling good yarns i've had some great conversations with ian uh, yes. i actually interviewed ian so he you in when i get it edited and posted online there will be an interview with ian about his uh, memories of gay bars from, I think, New York City in the 70s yeah. is what he was talking about. Um, right. I've interviewed um, St. Suki Delacroix. Um, I've interviewed Owen Keenan. Um, I've interviewed Rick Carlin. So right. numerous of their, right. um, of their authors. And they are a specialty publishing house um, that focuses on gay stories. Not so much the typical you know, cheesy dollar store romance novels, but a little bit edgier, the um, the unheard voices of the gay community. I don't think they're really looking for anybody to write um, the biography of Oscar Wilde, because there's probably 20 of those out there, but edgier stories and stories that haven't been told before and um, stories from authors that have a different, um, a different perspective on, on gay life and gay history. I think that's a good characterization. They're open to publishing work that they like, even if they're not sure if it will have commercial potential. Um, the idea being, if we do good work, we will find our audience. And they, they are willing to take risks with work that some other publishers are not comfortable doing. Well, so, and it's yeah. so important to be able to tell our stories, you know, there, I mean, obviously you can tell them on the internet and everywhere else, but the internet's not going to be around forever. Despite these rumors, it's not that hard for aspects of the internet information to disappear. Just like floppy disks disappeared and CD-ROMs disappeared and, you know, yeah, we don't know what the future holds. So books tend to stay around uh, and they're doing a great job. They've got a great stable of authors and, um, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see, you know, the kind of stuff they've co they're coming out with. So, well, thank but you I'm, for plugging us. Are <laughs> you welcome? And thank you for sharing your memories with us and uh, telling us about some of the bars in Boston that we haven't heard about before and some of your interesting encounters uh, <laughs> in Boston. So, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Art. Thank you. Likewise. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode, or to find more episodes, visit GayBarchives.com.